The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, and welcome to this week's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm your host, Ian Fisher, and we're recording this show on a beautiful mid-July day in Portland, Oregon. Hope you're enjoying your summer wherever you are. I want to start today's show with a big thank you to all of our listeners. It has become clear to us that you've been sharing our advice with friends and colleagues, and the result has been incredible growth in our listening audience. Uh, I think it's really beyond what we all expected when we started doing this show uh, about a year and a half ago. Whether you're listening to us abroad or right here in the States, you're among tens of thousands of monthly listeners. You make this possible, you keep us going, and we're delighted to be able to continue college admissions and finance advice each and every week. Keep your radio tuned to getting in throughout the summer and into the fall, and we'll continue to bring you expert advice on every aspect of the college application process. And thanks very much for listening. All right, on today's show, we're going to get a little trendy. In our second segment, we want to share some of the trends we saw in the national admissions landscape this year and how those changes might affect students applying this fall. We'll also try to give some good news to those of you with bad credit as we talk about the ways you might navigate the loan process if your score is a little lower than you'd like it to be. That'll be in our final segment. But first, I'd like to discuss a topic that we haven't really touched on in this show in the past, though it tends to be a part of the college search process for thousands and thousands of students, and that topic is college fairs. Joining me just in the nick of time is my good friend and colleague, old and new, Becky Leikling. Hi, Becky. Hi, Ian. It is a joy to be with you on the radio show today. <laughs> I, know, I know you love coming on the show, so I'm so glad you're here. You and I actually met at a college fair in New Mexico <laughs> about seven or eight years ago. Uh, so college fairs are great. Um, you were representing Tufts. I was representing Reed. And it was a part of uh, a whole suite of events in Albuquerque and, and the Santa Fe area. Um, and there are lots of different types of college fairs. But I'd just like to start with a, a kind of a generic version. Can you describe for listeners sort of what the atmosphere of a college fair is? Yeah. Um, and, and like you said, it totally varies fair to fair based on size and setting. But in general, there are a lot of excited students, a lot of nervous students, a lot yeah. of excited parents and nervous parents, uh-huh. and admissions officers who are about to spend the next two to four hours standing and talking constantly. Yeah. So it's, there's a lot of energy, and it can be really, really fun, but it also can be overwhelming sometimes. Yeah, it can be, a, it can be very overwhelming. I've, I don't... Did you go to college fairs when you were a student looking at colleges? 
I don't think I knew college fairs existed when I was a student looking at colleges. I don't think I did either. I think it was something that um, by the time I'd been through the process, my, my dad took my brother, my younger brother. But I don't really remember it from the student side. I definitely remember from the admission side. And my gosh, the number of conversations that you have in a period of two, three hours, uh, it's incredible. Um, I want to sort of start with who should be looking at college fairs. Um, what, in particular, what the best time is to go. Or is this something that's a good thing for seniors to do, or is it better if you're a little bit of a younger student? I think there's opportunities for students of a lot of ages to get something out of it. Um, my guess is that the sweet spot would be, you know, second half of junior year, maybe hmm. early seniors, I'll say juniors, who are ready to learn a lot about a lot of colleges. Um, right. I think some sophomores could go and get something out of it. But I think for sophomores who aren't quite ready to be having these conversations in a serious way, there's going to be a lot of information and it might be overwhelming. Um, so I think that's up to the family to decide, you know, given how their student's reacting, given how their family is talking about college, uh, are they ready to go to kind of a huge marketplace and sort through a lot of noise to find information that's useful for them? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I was sort of thinking when I asked that question, I was thinking, well, you know, freshmen or sophomores, it's a, it's like a low energy and time investment because you're going for just two hours. It's not like you're flying across the country to look at a specific college campus. Usually it's in your town. Um, you know, you just got to drive there and, and go and see some colleges. But I think you're right that, that you kind of need to bring something to it, some sort of a mindset that's going to be useful uh, if you're going to get something out of it. Otherwise, it's it's going to be overwhelming, I think. Um, how do you make a, a visit to a fair more productive? What are some things, some steps that you can take to make sure that you're getting everything you can out of a fair? And what, what is sort of the ideal uh, sort of takeaway from a college fair experience? Um, I would start by thinking about, um, to your point, like, what is it that I want from this? Uh, if there are already schools on your radar that you haven't been able to visit or, you know, you're curious about but, but need to know more, you're definitely going to want to go to those booths, but you're going to want to go there with intention and specific questions. Um, yeah. You can find out a lot of stuff online, and it's a waste of your time and theirs if you're asking questions that a little bit of research could get you. So I would think about, you know, what, what would I want from a visit? What things would I want to ask a student or a representative on campus um, that are impossible or hard to figure out online? And I would have three or four questions that you're going to ask of most schools to get that kind of vibe or pulse. And so, and you're saying that you want to repeat those same questions for multiple institutions, or do you want to have specific questions for each school or, or some combination of both? Um, I think it depends on, again, where you're at in the process. If you are just getting started and you're still trying to figure out kind of what matters to you and why, then I would ask similar questions. I have similar questions ready to ask of each school and start to hear the subtle ways in which they have different responses. Um, they're probably going to hit similar buzzwords, uh, but the direction in which they take your question and run with it 
can help you understand the differences between schools, and then we'll help you develop into a natural conversation. No longer your canned questions, but but the reality for that school. I think if you already are an informed consumer and you've done visits or you've done a lot of research, then my guess is that your questions are going to be much more specific and they'll vary from school to school because you're trying to complete the picture that you have of that school in your mind and the gaps mm-hmm. are different. Yeah. Man, I got a lot of questions just came out of that real quick. I, I'm wondering, is there is there value in being in getting a first introduction to a school that you've never heard of before at a college fair? How you know a lot of people think, well, I'm going to go to this fair and I'm going to learn about a lot of schools that I haven't heard of. Does that seem realistic to do? Can you just sort of walk up to a booth and say, well, what's this place all about? Or do you need to do some? <laughs> um, I got that question a lot. I don't know if you got that at Tufts, but a lot of people are like, well, read. What's that? Um, because they saw that we were in Portland, Oregon, and and they wanted to know more. Uh, yeah. But I I don't know. Is that is that a useful strategy? I think it depends a lot on the student and the way they engage in conversations like that. And I think it depends a lot on the look of the draw of the admissions officer. And if that personality happens to be one who can you know pick up on the energy your student is putting down and and match it and in a way that is personal. Um, I think a lot of admissions officers will not be energized by an open-ended question like what's read about because they'll feel like it's you're asking them to be a website or you're asking them to, you know, they want you to be a more informed consumer. But I think if you have a more specific opener um, or the language or your body space or, you know, whatever, if you're in a good moment, then that could be a great a great way to, you know, actually learn more about a school you've never heard of. Yeah, and I would say as far as specific owner, specific openers are concerned, um, I would say that it's it's more the nature of the question that you ask than the um, the content you're looking for. So I, I had students that would come and ask me like, how strong is your physics department? And that's a question that I, I would say is specific, but it doesn't, it's not interesting to engage with as the respondent. Like answering that question is kind of hard. But if you say, can you tell me some of the interesting work that's being done in your physics department? Or um, are students able to engage with undergraduate research in the sciences? Those are similar kinds of questions, but they're more interesting for the admission officer who's standing there for three hours to be able to answer. And, And that puts you in a better space. Um, you're mentioning, it's really interesting, you're sort of drawing a distinction between going online and getting information about a school and, and actually talking to a person. Um, a lot of students have this perception that getting in front of the person who maybe reads their application or is involved in admission decisions can be a real positive for them. Uh, how much of a, an impression can you make as a student on an admission officer at a college fair? That is probably the most asked question families have about college fairs. Um, and I, I think my answer here is similar to almost every type of engagement you could have with an admissions officer in that if it is genuine excitement, genuine connection with the school, genuine connection with the admissions officer as a person, that can only be helpful because these are human beings and if they remembered your conversation and they really enjoyed it, They'll, they'll bring that energy to your application when they evaluate it. But I think the flip side of that is the students who try to craft that artificially usually end up hurting themselves in the process because they end up asking more time than necessary of the admissions officer or asking questions that seem 
um, manufactured or artificial. Uh, and so I think if, if you are lucky enough that you and the admissions officer have a good connection and you are passionate enough about the school that you have a really nuanced question that you're dying to ask, trust that that will come across well, um, but don't try to create it. Uh, the college fair is not a space where you, where admissions officers are looking to evaluate candidates or are looking to, you know, have those memorable interactions. And so it's kind of a cherry on top if it happens. Right. You're not sort of going to ask this question that blows them out of the water and they're going to say, well, I can't wait to go to bat for you when you submit your application. That's just <laughs> something that I think you can imagine, but it's, it doesn't work that way. I, there is, I think, an important uh, takeaway just about the logistics of admission travel is that one admission officer usually is in town for the big college fair in a particular part of the country and then will also be visiting high schools in that area around that same time. And so you may connect with somebody at a college fair who later comes to visit your high school or who conducts on-the-road interviews um, in that town. And so you might have two or three interactions with this person. And instead of thinking about the college fair as the one time to get in front of that admission officer, think about, well, actually, I might have a relationship with this person over junior year and senior year between a college visit and an interview and meeting at the fair and meeting at my school where, you know, I can sort of show that I'm really interested in the school. Um, so I think those things tend to add up and can be a positive. Uh, but but that one interaction at the fair, I think it's unlikely to make an impact. Um, yeah. Becky, usually at fairs, parents come along um, and you all, almost always have these tandems coming up to you, a mom and a daughter, uh, a mom and a son, a dad and a daughter. Uh, how should parents and students think about dividing their roles and responsibilities at the college fair? Um, so this also will depend a little bit on, um, on where your family is at regarding college conversations. I often encourage families to divide and conquer. I think um, sometimes kids will feel free asking different questions or admissions officers might respond with subtle differences in their answers if the, the asker is a teenager versus an adult. Um, and so I would make a plan for the colleges you want to visit, the types of questions you want to ask, but then I would split up and ask them all separately and then regroup at the end. Um, if your student isn't in a place where they're ready to have that kind of independence uh, and you do want to visit the booths as a family, I would encourage the student as much as possible to be the mouthpiece and to take ownership of their process. Um, but I also, you know, like we said, these are not intended to be evaluative in any way. The mm -hmm. admissions officers are not looking to remember who's what. And so if mom or dad wants to ask questions, they should feel free and not, not worry that they're going to somehow hurt their student in the process by doing so. Yeah, if you're curious, by all means, ask questions. I think it's just, uh, there's a matter of being the person front and center versus letting mm -hmm. your student be the person who's front and center. And I think all admission officers make an effort to, you know, make eye contact and direct their answers to the student, um, which doesn't mean that the parents aren't important, but we're really looking to connect with students. They're the ones going to school. Um, and this sort of brings up, uh, you know, another question just in general, uh, which is good etiquette at college fairs. Are there are there sort of things that people should be paying attention to as they're moving their way around this space? Maybe not because it's evaluative, but just because it's a good way to be. Um, one thing that I always noticed actively was when people at my table were aware of the people around them 
and opened their body to accommodate more listeners. Um, I think it tends to get loud in those rooms, and there's an instinct to kind of lean forward and get as close as you can to the speaker, but in doing so, then a line forms, and one person at a time can talk to the admissions officer, and they're all asking the same questions. And so if you have the awareness of your space to kind of stand at an angle or step to the side so you can include more people, I always notice the student who does that. And you you benefit from that because if you let more people into the space, you might benefit from a great question that another student totally. asks and the response that the admission officer gives. So, you know, it's it's so much more fun as an admission officer to talk to a group of four families than to talk to four individual families consecutively, especially when those answers are being rehashed. Um, so, so keep that in mind uh, as you think about those spaces. Um, one last question is what should kids bring to the fair and what should they take away? Um, you know, are there any materials that are useful to have in hand when you go to a college fair and what are you looking to bring home with you? I would bring um, some pre-printed labels with your contact information so you can just cool. pop it on to all the info cards that colleges are going to want you to fill out. So whatever you'd need for their mailing list, your name, address, email, year of graduation, if you have particular academic interests, but I literally mean mailing label, not a resume, not your stats, nothing qualitative, just the most important contact info. Great. And then are you, should you always take a brochure? Uh, what do you do about all those handouts that you end up going on with? Um, that's a really interesting question. I, as someone who, you know, when I'm walking on the street and someone has, passes me a flyer, I always take it because I feel like I, I should, it's nice, but then I recycle it. And that's not, I realize that's not productive. Um, they have brought a limited number of flyers. And if you know you're not interested, don't take their paperwork. Or if you know you're so interested that you're going to go and look it up online later, don't take their paperwork because you're going to get the same information. But if you are someone who is a tactile learner and you want that brochure to review later, by all means, take that mm-hmm. paper from the booth where you know that you will read it later. Yeah, but don't feel like you owe it to us to take our stuff. Um, totally. It's, yeah, you don't need to do that at all. Um, Becky, thank you so much for pinch hitting here. I think our listeners will be surprised to hear that our scheduled guest was a last minute scratch and you filled in so beautifully. So thanks a lot. <laughs> thanks, I owe yeah. you one. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, when we come back, we'll be talking hot topics and admission. So don't go away. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. 
Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, one of the things we try our hardest to stay up on is trends in college admissions landscape. Uh, year over year, there aren't major seismic shifts in college admission though I would say that the introduction of the coalition app last year was a little bit of a big event, but there are subtle differences that are important for families to understand if they want to make smart choices about where to send their applications the next fall, what sort of application timeline to use, uh, what the wait list means, and more. So joining me this week to talk about trends that we observed in admissions last year is our research guru from the Northeast, Elise Krantz. Welcome to the show, Elise. Hi, Ian. Thank you. So we observed some things. We saw some stuff happening with all the students that we work with um, and national things. And we have a few observations. I think one is sort of one that we hear just about every year, right, which is that the selective schools keep getting more selective. And you'd think we'd reach a point when it would be impossible for them to get yet more selective, but it seems we have not yet reached that point. Um, I was looking at some statistics the other day, and it seems like most of the ultra-selective colleges are receiving more applications than ever, which therefore is driving their acceptance rates lower than ever. Um, Within the Ivy League, for example, six of the eight schools saw lower ED rates this year compared to last year, and all but one of them saw an increase in their overall numbers of applications. Wow. Um, I I mean, I think part of that is, you know, I'm hearing a lot of students that I work with this year, they just sort of say, I want to apply to see if I can get in, or I'm going to do it just to apply. And it always tends to be those highly selective schools. Nobody says, I'm just going to see if I can get into the University of Colorado. Um, it's, it's always going to be one of the most elite institutions. Uh, but, but it's not just those schools that are seeing big upticks in their application numbers, right? There are other schools that are also becoming more selective. Exactly. And, you know, for, for the schools that end up reporting it in their own uh, daily newspapers or that are making the national headlines, it, it's still the selective schools such as the NYUs and Williams and Emory and Duke and Georgetown. I mean, the list goes on, and many of them keep saying that they are seeing record highs. So each year they're breaking the previous year's record. But back to your just uh, your comment a second ago with more students applying because they want to just give it a shot, I think a lot of that, yes, is from... It's driven by students' desires to 
to give themselves that opportunity. But don't you think a lot of it is coming from those colleges themselves? They're, yep. they're traveling more. They're trying to drum up more business. They're trying to get more students to apply. They, they are oftentimes sending that message of, hey, you never know. And it gives a lot of students this false hope that they have a chance when in reality they aren't quite going to be competitive. Yeah, this uh, trio of uh, blog articles that I wrote in the Huffington Post about highly selective schools and what they could be doing better. And I think this transparency about a student's chances is one thing, but I mean, you really hit on that competition and trying to drum up business. I mean, sort of reminded of that. There's a Tracy Flick quote in the movie Election where she talks about Coca-Cola being number one, but spending more on advertising than anybody else. Uh, you know, these these schools are competing with each other and want to stay at the top. And that means trying to mm-hmm. encourage more and more applications from students. Um what does this mean for, for students who are applying? Um, you know, it, does it just mean it, it's harder and harder to get in every year? Um, or is there, I think is so, there unfortunately, there? especially yeah. for these more selective schools. I mean, not every school saw these kinds of changes. For example, George Washington went in the opposite direction. They were worried about yield and ended up admitting a lot more students this past year than the previous year. But I think for students who are concerned about this trend continuing, the the best advice we can give is really just to balance your list with the appropriate no problem and just right schools so that you're not applying to all challenging, all reach schools, that you're going to have some options in less selective categories. Right. So you really got to sort of play out how you think things are going to go, what what the worst case scenario might be and say, OK, if I get into my no problem schools and one or two just rights, that's something I'm OK with. Right. You really mm-hmm. got to think about it all the way on down the road. Um, and, you know, we're seeing actually move on to another trend that you're seeing is is schools using the wait list a little bit differently this past year than they had in, in years previous. Um, what were some of the things that you noticed on the wait list? So. Because so many more students are applying, colleges are finding it that much harder to predict their yield. That is, once they send out that letter of acceptance, they don't know who's going to come back at them and say, yes, I would like to attend. So in order to manage uh, and not admit so many students, they are admitting that nice small number that they like, but then they're throwing thousands and thousands of qualified applicants onto their wait list, knowing that they can always turn to those students if they're not getting enough students who are planning to enroll. So this year, it was so interesting. We were hearing as early as May 3rd from some colleges. Keep in mind that May 1st is sort of the the national deadline for students to let colleges know whether or not they're coming. And so as early as May 3rd, colleges were letting students know we'd like to accept you off of the wait list. Would you like to come? And this was these were for selective colleges, um, Skidmore and Swarthmore and Villanova and Cornell. They all turned to their wait list in very early May this year. So does that mean, I think some students are going to hear that along with the first trend about selectivity, and they're going to say, well, that means if I'm waitlisted that I've got a pretty good shot of, of getting in because schools are going to the wait list more often. Uh, is is that a conclusion that students should draw, or, or are things still pretty tough off the wait list and going to continue to be that way going forward? It's always going to be tough to get off of a wait list, and I think it's 
part of the reason is because colleges are putting that many more students on the wait list. So, yes, although handfuls of students are getting off, it's unpredictable because some colleges may not even need to use their wait list one year, even though they used it heavily in the previous year. Um, mm-hmm. But if some colleges, some of them are, are waitlisting more students then they're actually admitting. I mean, it's thousands of students who are on these wait lists. Now, not all colleges saw an increase in their wait list offers. Last year, there were several that went down, which was nice to see that they weren't going overboard in that way. But mm-hmm. the vast majority of colleges that I looked into had increased offers for, for wait list students in terms of you know, offering them a spot on the wait list. Right. And, and, you know, I think it just reinforces that the responsibility of the dean or enrollment manager is to make sure that they bring a class in the next year. And it's not necessarily to have a clean cut with all the applicants uh, who aren't going to get in. And so if you're at a school that's a fourth tier school and you're worried about other schools that are more selective than you going to a wait list, your wait list is going to be pretty big because you might be worried that you're going to lose some of the students who've chosen to enroll when they get in elsewhere. So, you know, be be a little bit wary when you get on that wait list. I don't think it means that, you know, you have this huge amount of hope, uh, but it's, it's really a strategy that's being used by the colleges to manage their enrollment. Um, you also observe that students, that things are kind of going in the other direction, that there may have been a reaction to more selective institutions getting more selective in terms of where else students are applying. Uh, you talk a little bit about what we saw with some of those bigger schools. Sure thing. Um, so it's become, it's, it's, there have been a lot of articles about it lately in the news um, about public honors programs. So large state universities that have tremendous honors programs whereby students get preferential treatment for housing, for class enrollment, for special learning opportunities. And a lot of students, especially those who are perhaps uh, would like to balance the financial side of as well as the academics. They're not just focused on the brand name. They're not just focused on the prestige. They'd like a school where they can afford the tuition. They're finding that these honors colleges are offering a fantastic value. Um, so when I was looking at among the most popular colleges for college coach students, um, the majority of the public school applications went up, the, the, the public universities. And some of them, actually, we saw our highest numbers ever. So this past year for the, the 2016-2017 admissions cycle, um, we had more students than ever before apply to the University of Arizona. Um, we had a lot apply to UCLA, also to Berkeley. Uh, University of Texas at, at Austin saw a huge increase, also University of Oregon. Um, students, I think, are are realizing that there's more out there than just these selective liberal arts colleges or selective research universities um, on the private side, that these public school options can really be a great fit as well. Yeah, and I saw that a lot with, with students that I worked with because being out on the West Coast, um, you know, students do look at, at Oregon. They look at the UCs, certainly. Um, Oregon's got a great honors college. Arizona State has a great honors college. Um, and we've had radio shows in, in our archives where we've talked about that. Um, but, but I think students that 
maybe they were hopeful that they were going to get into some super selective schools, but their grades aren't quite what they need to be or their scores aren't quite what they need to be. I think they're comfortable looking at these honors colleges as an option because the academic quality is really, really strong. I mean, it might be on par with some of those highly selective institutions when you get right down to it. Um, And it's really cool to see students seriously considering you know, the honors program at University of Arizona, um, as opposed to a school that might have, you know, the ostensibly stronger reputation or more prestige. I I like seeing students making those kinds of decisions. Absolutely. And a tip for students thinking ahead to next year, obviously, if more and more students are applying to these uh, state schools, it's likely that they're going to see increased competition as time goes on. So I would strongly recommend that students take advantage of those rolling or early action deadlines for the public universities that offer it. Um, Oftentimes it's a first come first serve. You apply super early and you can hear back super early and if you wait, for example, to apply to the University of Michigan in the regular decision round, you're going to have a much, much harder time standing out than if you apply in the early action round. And some of these have uh, applications are available much earlier than you would even think. So I, you know, I think if you're a senior right now who's thinking about applying to some public uh, schools or public honors programs, you should be looking at, at their timeline right away. Um, mm-hmm. And the one interesting thing about honors colleges at a lot of these schools is that there's a separate application process. So you can actually apply and get into the university first and then meet another deadline uh, for the honors program, filling out the essays and so forth that are associated with that. So you may be able to sort of approach it as a two-pronged uh, process and it's nice to have an admission decision under your belt, uh, you know, in September or October when everybody else is still working on their applications. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of early, uh, getting on things earlier, we we saw some trends in terms of how students are choosing to apply to to colleges with ED and EA. Uh, what's that looking like? This has been a consistent trend for years because the secret is kind of out. The cat is out of the bag. Applying early decision increases your chances of getting in. (laughs) Colleges will tell you it doesn't, and maybe for a handful of schools, the, the acceptance rates are quite similar, but for the vast majority of colleges that offer an early decision plan, which is separate from early action, so the early decision is the binding program, right, where you, you apply early November right. or mid-November and you hear back in mid-December, and if you get in, you're in, and that's it. You're done applying. Um, for those schools, applying ED can sometimes double your chances of getting in. I mean, it's it's just a a more successful way for many students who are competitive to begin with, it it will boost their chances. Um, So we saw with our college coach students, the number of students applying early decision uh, went up from last year to this year, as well as early action. Um, In the early action, there isn't quite the same boost. And for some colleges, the acceptance rate for early action students, which means you apply early and you hear back early, but you're not bound to attend. You don't have to commit to that institution until the May 1 deadline. Um, there There is sometimes not a benefit to applying in terms of the admissions statistics. You don't have a better chance of getting in. You just get that nice added bonus of hearing back a little early. But it's it's definitely been the case that more and more applicants are taking advantage of those early applications. Yeah. And, and I, I would echo what you said just at the very outset, which is that 
colleges are going to insist that the pool looks rough, roughly the same from ED to regular, but there are there are schools where you're going to have no shot of getting in regular, but you may have a shot ED because there is a really dramatic difference, I think, in terms of what colleges are looking for. But, but I also want to say, sometimes this means parents come to me and they say, we need an ED school. Be careful of that kind of thinking. You have to make sure that it's a school that's going to be your top choice because you are going to have to attend. So even if you sort of figure out the game theory of, all right, I can get in here if I apply ED, it may not be the best outcome if you're compelled to attend a school that's not your top choice. Right, and I remember actually when I was at Barnard uh, several years ago, we didn't see a lot of students transferring out, but a good number of those who did were early decision applicants, and perhaps it was because they didn't do their research and they fell in love with the school on paper, but then when they got there, it didn't. the reality was, was a little bit different for them. Um, so I absolutely agree. You don't want to rush into that ED decision. Um, but if you love a school... Great, ED1. And then also, I did want to just briefly mention, too, that a lot of colleges are now offering that ED2, early decision 2 option. So if you are able to financially commit to a school and you've done your research and you love it, and if you have two schools and you apply ED to one and it doesn't work out, you may be able to apply early decision 2 to your your second favorite option and hopefully get a boost that way. Yeah, I had one student that did that last year. She loved George Washington, and her clear second was American, and she just wanted to be in D.C. so badly. And she didn't get into George Washington, so she applied ED2 to American and got in there. So it worked out for her. Um, We have about 30 seconds, but I know there was one more thing that you wanted to share. And since we've got so many international listeners to this radio show, uh, I think this is useful information. So what's the final trend you saw, Lise? Primarily because of political events happening in this country, uh, fewer international students are applying both at the undergraduate and graduate level to colleges in the United States. Um, There was a survey done by U.S. News and World Report a few months ago, and they found that for those who responded to the survey, almost 40% of colleges saw fewer international students apply um, than they did the previous year, whereas about 35% saw an increase and 26% saw no change, but it does appear that the trend might be reversing. We've seen a lot of international students over the years applying, but um, it's, it might be coming harder for them to make that a reality. Yeah, and that may depend also on immigration policies uh, in the news and, and student visas being easier uh, for students to get or may turn out to be harder uh, for international students to get. So we'll keep an eye on that. Um, Elise, Thanks so much for joining us and doing all of this digging and research. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. This is awesome. Two down, one to go. Time is running out on this week's podcast. We'll be back after a quick break. So grab a snack and join us for the final segment. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, 
how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Aliens with Gas, we are the extraterrestrial rock show airing every Saturday afternoon on the voiceamerica.com variety channel. <laughs> Whatever happens out and about, it kind of dictates our conversation. For sure. And we like to tie in a little bit of the past and obviously keep it real current. And real current was a couple nights ago right here in Phoenix, a phenomenon happened. On Thursday night. Phenomenon. <laughs> phenomenon. <laughs> phenomenon. <laughs> All right, never mind. <laughs> That's every Saturday right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. Before our final guest joins us, I want to thank one of our Facebook followers, Erica from Cincinnati, for her fantastic suggestion that we share some of our school spotlights here on the radio show. And Erica, I imagine you're also a radio show listener because you specifically called out the show as a great place for us to listen to, to, to read some spotlights. Um, for those of you who are unfamiliar with our Facebook page, go to facebook.com slash college coach, or you can search for college coach. And you'll be delighted to find that we have multiple weekly spotlights of universities and colleges all over the country. So we thought we'd share one with you today. Uh, today's spotlight, the most recent one we shared online, is Providence College. This text comes straight from our team. What does it mean to be a Catholic and Dominican college? For Providence College, a private liberal arts school with 4,100 undergraduates, it means that Sunday night mass is often standing room only. Theology and philosophy courses are two requirements of the core curriculum, and faith goes hand in hand with reason. At Providence College, science students can engage in discussions about evolution while still feeling a strong connection to their faith. Volunteerism, too, plays a central role on campus. Students donate approximately 50,000 community service hours each year, either through campus ministry programs, alternative spring breaks, or service learning courses that combine active service with intellectual reflection. Interested students can even major in public and community service studies, which exposes students to community organizing, leadership skills, and fieldwork experience. Marketing, finance, and biology are the three most popular areas of interest among undergrads, but keep in mind that Providence College also offers accelerated combined programs in optometry through the New England College of Optometry and engineering with Washington University in St. Louis or Columbia University. And here's a fun fact. Providence College's admissions office has been test optional since 2006. Applicants who choose not to submit their SAT or ACT score will not be penalized in any way. If you're looking for more school spotlights, give us a like on Facebook, and we'll do our best to share spotlights here on the radio show as often as we can. All right. My final guest today 
is an old favorite, which is to say that she's been a favorite for a while and it is no way is in no way a commentary on her age. Welcome, <laughs> no way. Kathy Ruby, back to the show. Hey Kathy. Hi Ian. Good to be here. Uh, glad you're here. We're gonna talk about getting loan with bad credit. Now I assume that we're talking about uh, parent loans in this case, or are we talking about student loans? Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking mostly about parent loans. So when we think about bad sure. credit, the traditional undergraduate student probably doesn't have bad credit yet, or somebody leaving high school and going into college, hopefully they don't have bad credit yet, they just don't have credit yet. So, right. um, so most, uh, most traditional undergraduate students um, can borrow the basic federal direct student loan, which essentially allows them to borrow about Twenty-seven to thirty-one thousand dollars over the course of four four to five years, um, but beyond that, any additional financing has to be borrowed by the parent or co-signed by the parent. So we're really talking about um, a parent who might be trying to get financing for their child and has bad credit. And we're focused here mostly on undergraduate student education. If things change for graduate students in terms of that calculus and where the balance of loans comes from and goes to? Yeah, I mean, as a graduate student, um, graduate students become eligible for 20500 from the federal direct student loan, which actually they don't even do a credit check on that loan. Um, and then there's actually a graduate federal loan called the Graduate Plus Loan um, that graduate students can also borrow. And for that, um, they just have to have no bad credit, which we're actually going to talk about because that's that's similar to, or it is the same program, which is the Parent Plus Loan Program. Gotcha. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about options that parents have if their credit is not particularly good. Okay, so if a parent if a parent is worried that they're not going to be approved for a loan because they have a high debt-to-income ratio or maybe their FICO score is only fair to good um, because they have a lot of debt or um, for whatever reason, um, it is possible to borrow, it is still possible to borrow the federal direct plus loan. So that, that used to stand for parent loan for undergraduate students, but now they just call it plus because it's also available for graduate students. Mm-hmm. So. So if your if your credit's not great, you may be surprised. You may still be able to borrow a plus loan. Okay. So how does that work? I love the oh. acronym. The plus. Yeah. So the so it's the great, plus loan um, essentially it allows parents to borrow up to the cost of the college, less other financial aid that the student's receiving. Um, and when you apply for the PLUS loan, they pull your credit, but they're just looking to make sure that you don't have any adverse credit history, and that's what they call it, and they actually define it as um, within the last five years, you can't have a bankruptcy, a foreclosure, a tax lien, or a repossession, um, and then you can't have a balance of 2085 or higher <laughs> that's 90 days past due. Um, so they're really just checking to make sure you don't have any bad credit. Um, so you don't have to have excellent credit. You just can't have bad credit. I wonder how they uh, decided to stick that $85 on there on top of that. Yeah, I know. I'm sure there's probably a reason, and I ran out of time to research it. I kind of wanted to know. <laughs> yeah, it just seems a little unusual. Well, you know, yes. it's one of those <laughs> negotiations about laws. Um, <laughs> so who knows? Uh, all right. So let's say a parent 
is denied a plus loan because they've got that uh, the issue. One of the issues you mentioned, maybe a bankruptcy or foreclosure, or they're, they've got that uh, credit card bill that's that's passed due for ninety days. So mm-hmm. what 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 happens next? So they have a couple different options. Um, the first is actually if they just let the denial stay, um, the student actually becomes eligible for uh, some more unsubsidized direct student loans. So the student, Mm. if they're a first or second year student, they get an extra $4,000 a year. Um, And if they're a a junior or senior, they get an extra $5,000 a year. So that, that, for some families, that's enough to cover what they need, and they they don't have to do anything to try to correct the PLUS loan denial. Um, And of course, you want to... Well, be aware the, of that. The, the drawback there is that you're you're putting more student loan responsibility onto the student. Exactly. Right? The, so you'd want okay. to do that, but also know that you know that means the student will borrow more than perhaps they can afford to repay when they graduate. So it's something you're going to want to be be there to help with, probably. Um, okay. So if if that is not enough, though, and and that's not going to solve the problem, and many times it doesn't. Um, then the parent has a couple different options. Um, they can apply with an, what's called an endorser. Um, and so you have to find somebody else who doesn't have adverse credit um, and see if they will endorse the loan for you. Um, so being an endorser is a little different than co-signing a loan. So when you, when you co-sign a loan, you are equally responsible. So that means that if I co-sign a loan, it's going to appear on my credit report. And if the person who borrowed the loan doesn't make their payments, I am equally responsible for repaying that loan. Um, mm-hmm. An endorser is just agreeing to repay the loan if the borrower doesn't. So it means that there's going to be some sort of a process that happens where the person doesn't repay the loan, a certain amount of time will go by, and then the government will come to the endorser and say, now you have to repay this loan because the borrower didn't. So if you're an endorser, it's actually a good thing because it doesn't the loan doesn't appear on your credit report until you're actually having to pay it. So... It's a little bit better to be an endorser than a cosigner. So that's the most ideal situation if you can find an endorser. And then sometimes there might be extenuating circumstances around something on your credit report, whether it's a bankruptcy or a foreclosure, um, whatever it might be. So the government actually does have a process by which you can appeal a plus loan denial um, and provide information about any extenuating circumstances around your denial. So let me get the endorser, cosigner different. I come to you with a proposition, Kathy, mm-hmm. and I say, all right, I want to get this loan and I want you to cosign it with me. Uh, if I stop making payments on that loan, then it immediately affects your credit. And the loan yeah. shows up on your credit right away. Yeah. Whereas if you, if I come to you and, and ask you to be an endorser, it only ever shows up on your credit after I have missed payments and you're now being sought out to make those yeah. payments and, and then I'm now it shows responsible up? for the loan. Yeah. Okay. And there, so, there's some, there's some process that happens where the government says, all right, endorser, now it's your turn. You have to pay it. So my being delinquent on my payments, which is very out of character, I must say, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, would, of course. Would, would not <laughs> affect you uh, right away. It would be something right. that you would have an opportunity to rectify later. Yeah, it'll take a little um, while. But, of course, it's still a serious thing to do because, you know, to get an endorser, that's that's a big thing somebody's going to do for you. But it is a way to solve the plus loan problem. Do endorsers tend to be family members, aunts and uncles, grandparents? Yeah, that's usually that what we hear. Yes. 
Gotcha. <laughs> Usually not a good idea to get a friend to endorse or co-sign a loan. I wouldn't think so, um, but I still got a proposition for you. We'll talk after the uh, after the show. Okay. Um, <laughs> what other types of loans might be available? What if what if uh, these things don't work work out, or you know, I'm not able to to find an endorser? I can't appeal through the federal government. Um, what else can I do? So it is a tough situation. Um, so pa- parents often ask about private loans for students. And private loans, you know, private lenders offer loans, uh, you know, Discover, Wells Fargo, all kinds of different lenders offer loans to students. But traditional undergraduate students, again, because they don't have any established credit, generally will need a cosigner. And to cosign a private loan, your credit has to be better than it has to be for a plus loan um, because those lenders will be doing a debt-to-income check. They'll be looking at your FICO score. So if your credit's bad enough that you're not getting approved for a plus loan, you're probably not going to be approved to co-sign a loan, so you'd have to help your student find a different co-signer. Um, you know, depending on your circumstances, you might be able to get a home equity line of credit or refinance your home, but I guess that really just depends on your situation and who would, you know, who would be willing to lend to you. Um, you can also check in with your college. Uh, some colleges have institutional loan programs, and they may offer them to families who are sort of at the end of the road in terms of what they can get from the plus loan or in the private market. Um, that's probably, you know, I've heard a few anecdotes from my colleagues of that happening. It's more likely to happen when your student is an upper-class student, um, because at that point, the institution is really vested in making sure they finish, right? And so they don't want somebody to drop out um, because you've had a problem with financing. Um, So probably more likely to happen at the upper class level than going right into the school. Um, And then the last resort, some families will borrow against their 401k, um, which, of course, you don't have to pass a credit check for, but there are lots of limitations on that. Um, There's a a limit on the amount that you can borrow. Um, If whatever you do borrow, you have to repay it in five years, um, and which is pretty short period of time, depending on what you're borrowing. Um, and then there are some risks involved in terms of if you leave your employer, um, they can you, you will have to repay the loan immediately. Um, and when you pay that loan back, it always sounds like a good deal because the interest rate is low, but you have to remember you're going to pay your 401k back with post-tax money. And then someday when you take the money out again to use in retirement, you're going to have to pay tax on it again. So you're actually going to get taxed twice on that money if you borrow from your 401k. So that should really be a last resort. So this is all, um, it's a tough situation to be in, right? You've got credits not particularly good. You're looking for a loan. Um, How do you, just sort of a big picture question, how do you encourage families to think about the worthwhileness value of taking out the loan versus choosing another college option or going to community college? Like how do people sort of think about that in their lives and what are some factors that they can use to account for that decision? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question because I think so many people get wrapped up in this idea, can I get the financing, Um, that they forget that Well, you can get it, but you're also going to have to repay it. Um, And in fact, that's the problem with the PLUS loan because they they don't care what your debt to income ratio is. They don't care what your FICO score is. So it's easy to get in over your head, especially with the PLUS loan, because they're not going to stop you if you're borrowing too much. Um, So... Our advice to families really is you have to sit down and do the math. 
um, and, and calculate what repayments will look like. If you're borrowing a loan, you should know what the interest rate's going to be. You should know what your repayment terms are going to be. So you can find a loan repayment calculator on bankrate.com and um, you know any number of websites have student loan repayment calculators where you can put in the numbers and really get a sense of what things are going to look like later on and whether that repayment's going to be affordable. Um, and we could we could actually talk for a long time about that in terms of making sure that loans are affordable um, based right. on what kind of career the student's going into also. Right. Yeah. I mean, I just think this is all really helpful information. It's also important to, I'm reminded of that, the Ian Malcolm quote from Jurassic Park. You spent so much time trying to think <laughs> whether you could, you didn't stop to think about whether you should. Right. Um, exactly. Which is, that which is, is perfect. That's, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah. All right, and a good reminder to go check in with Jurassic Park again. That's a classic. Uh, that's all the time we have for today, folks. Kathy, thanks for taking a tough topic and making it useful for our listeners, as you always do. Happy to help. Next week, Beth Heaton returns to hosting duties. She'll unpack one of the biggest questions about college. How do I evaluate whether my school is going to help me find a job when I graduate? We'll also be taking uh, talking summer school visits, and Kathy Ruby will be back to answer your finance questions. So get them in at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Enjoy your summer wherever you may be. We look forward to seeing you right back here next week on Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.